So hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me a very special guest, Scott Stossel, who's an accomplished journalist, author, and the national editor of The Atlantic. Scott has authored the New York Times bestseller, My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind. He's also an award-winning biography author of Sarge, The Life and Times of Sergeant Shriver. He's been with The Atlantic for nearly 30 years, leading its move from Boston to D.C. in 2005. And he's been outspoken about his lifelong experience with anxiety and is a vocal advocate for mental health and has been recognized for his work, bringing light to the struggles that so many people face. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Well, thanks so much for having me. There's so many things I want to talk to you about today. Of course, we're going to talk about anxiety, which is of particular interest to me. As you and I both know, anxiety is part of the human condition. We all have fears, worries, neuroses. And actually, if you didn't have anxiety, you would walk into traffic. You'd be dead from being eaten alive by the saber-toothed tiger. But some people have anxiety that is actually causing physical symptoms, interfering with their quality of life, and really affecting their health. And that is my interest, is how our mental health informs our physical health and and ultimately our medical outcomes. So I'd love to talk to you about how you're doing, what are you up to today, Mm -hmm. and let's just get after it. Talk to me. Sure. I'm glad to be here with you today. Thank you so much again for having me. And yeah, it's funny, you know, my my stress levels, uh, as I think everyone's these days, are elevated by, you know, the endless pandemic. Oh, yeah. And concerns about global conflagration in Europe and uh, domestic politics and all that stuff. Stuff, which, you know, dealing with that stuff and thinking about it is part of my daily job, which in some ways is, you know, constant exposure to stressful things, partly as a way of helping me to deal with it. You know, but then for me and for people like me who have underlying kind of clinical anxiety disorders, that can trigger, you know, sort of intersect with my underlying whatever genetic propensity and for kind of acute anxiety. And so actually, while you were talking, I was looking to see what my, you know, heart rate is on my my little Apple watch. And it's, you know, it's up at a, at a 104, which means I'm not having a panic attack, but, 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 but also, you know, that's probably 20 to 30 beats per minute faster than it ordinarily would, which means I'm, you know, a little bit elevated, alert, uh, uh, alert and activated. But anyway, no, I mean, I feel like the, the pandemic, particularly the first year, you know, through when we got vaccines was, you know, for someone like me who, you know, among the kind of constellation of specific anxieties I have is like health anxiety. And of course, you know, for everyone, it was natural to be afraid of COVID and what it would do to them or their families. You know, for me, it it, it really did, um, on the one hand, kind of elevate all that stuff and provoke it. And, you know, I think that kind of constant, again, through 2020 into early 2021, the constant like elevation of my like cortisol levels from just that constant stress level of everything being beset by the threat of COVID really made my stress levels higher in some ways and my just over, you know, affected my mood in bad ways. On the other hand, COVID sort of allowed me to, to sort of nurture or coddle my anxieties in other ways that was actually superficially helpful because right. um, all the, you know, my another set of my anxieties is just, you know, 
being out in the world and doing all kinds of stressful things. Like podcasting. Like podcasting and doing my job. And which normally I'm quite, you know, most of the time, not, you know, with, yes. with exceptions, I'm good at. But it requires kind of constant reinforcement. And when I get out of practice, you know, there, there was sort of this like, as for all of us, this narrowing of my universe. And you, I, I felt sort of like incipient agoraphobia setting in where it's just like, okay, I can be comfortable and safe in my home. I can do my job from there. And suddenly simple things like going out to have coffee with a colleague were once again like, oh my God, why am I feeling so anxious? And it was like the social machinery in my psyche had broken down. What you're saying mirrors so much of what I talk about with my patients, certainly in 2020 in the panic spring of massive uncertainty, looking at the images on television of like refrigerator trucks full of bodies outside of the New York hospitals. You know, that is when anxiety is entirely appropriate to be anxious and to be fearful. We had a potentially lethal virus. We didn't have a vaccine. We didn't know who exactly was at highest risk. And so it sounds like you had the natural anxiety that one would have. Anxiety, as you well know, hates uncertainty. It yep. hates unpredictability. And if your particular anxiety is about health, there's nothing like a global pandemic with a potentially lethal virus circulating invisibly and ubiquitously to scare the crap out of us. The challenge, I mean, there are lots of challenges, but the challenge for my patients and I think for you and for myself, because I'm not not anxious, is to root our thoughts and our behaviors in the facts, right? Like one of the ways I counsel my patients who have anxiety that's out of proportion to the actual threat at hand yep. is fact checking. The problem was back in 2020, there were no facts to check. Yeah. It was like, oh, this is a this is an open buffet bar of fear. Yeah. And for my patients who were already anxious, it, it sent them into orbit in some cases and affected their heart rate, their blood pressure. I was seeing surges of people's diabetes. People were binge eating. I yeah. saw a lot of people who were having panic attacks, people landing in the ER with cardiac events because of fear and anxiety and all of the associated chemicals that come along with that. And then I also saw, as you just said, patients whose anxiety was accidentally coddled and nurtured because they had an excuse to hunker at home and yeah. live in this envelope that was not actually compatible with real life, such that getting back into reality, as you just said, is hard because it challenges the anxiety that was kind of coddled. In fact, some of my OCD patients were kind of hashtag living their best lives totally. during pandemic. And I'm counseling them like, you have to challenge that anxiety. You've been vaccinated, you've been boosted, you're young, you're healthy, your risk of dying is less than than like driving in a car. You have to challenge your anxiety or else I'm worried you're never going to leave your house. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Th there was a moment very early in the pandemic in March of 2020, when I had that effect of almost vindication and yes. giddiness. And I was yes. like, okay, world, do you see what we have been worried about? Join the club. This is just what we like, deal welcome with to all my the world. time. <laughs> like, and this is like all hands on deck. And I'm good because yes. this is what I've been preparing. And so yeah, I actually felt you've been preparing for the existential threat of like mass destruction your whole life since you were two, Scott, right? Exactly. So, and of course, so I, that, that felt good for a while and I felt calm. And then as time passed, you know, it sort of wore on me. And exactly as you're saying, there's this kind of, you know, I had a therapist once who said, particularly if you have OCD or agoraphobia or any kind of phobia, it's like you need to be, you know, doing exposure therapy basically yeah. constantly. And he, he would call it like, you know, chopping back at the jungle. And if you don't do that, the jungle will just encroach and yeah. encroach and encroach. And what the pandemic allowed, sort of forced for some period of time, and then allowed was, okay, I'm just not going to confront any of these things. I'm not yeah. going to go out in the world. And it felt very comfortable. And meanwhile, you know, the jungle has like 
moved way in from where it was and that's why it becomes so much harder to then go back out in the world after that and it's a struggle you know it's 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 getting better as 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 the world opens up but one of the things i talk about with patients commonly is what is anxiety and what is stress and when does anxiety go from a, from a lowercase a which is you know part of the human condition and woven into the fabric of our dna to a capital a anxiety mm-hmm. where it's clinical and and that's really my job is to help people understand when the anxiety is adaptive and helping them you know, yep. run from danger if they're in a if they're in a, an abusive relationship, if they are in a toxic you know situation in their lives. Like having fear and anxiety is perhaps appropriate, but when does it when does it cross the line? To what extent is it genetic? Um, to what extent is it situational? And how do you tease those apart? That's that's really to me the most fascinating part of my job because there, of course there is no blood test for anxiety. There's yeah. no there's no PCR test for despair, right? So how would you describe that? Because you're living in a body and mind that has genetic and you know behavioral and environmental reasons for having anxiety in an anxious world. So how do you sort that and how do you explain it to somebody else? I mean, this is something that I'm sort of obsessed with, you know, both with my sort of of (laughs) narcissistically with like trying to figure out like, okay, why am I the way that I am? But also just as a almost an abstract scientific proposition, because it's exactly as you say, you know, there is stress which exists in the world, which is based on environmental circumstances and, you know, what is happening in the world. And then there is your sort of underlying genetic, you know, your genotype, which like predisposes you to a certain kind of temperament. And then there's the training you got as a child, like learning from your parents and experiences you had. And then there's whether or not you had trauma. And it is extremely hard to tease out definitively what relative role each of those things play. And that means that the line between, you know, what is quote unquote, you know, normal anxiety and a clinical anxiety disorder or something that is in need of, you know, treatment, as you say, there's no blood test. So it's, it's It's always a kind of, you know, an art as much as a science in sort of determining whether someone is in the kind of clinical zone or needs, you know, medication or needs help. I mean, you, you, you can probably see it in your patients, especially if you know them well, like if they're in a certain level of distress, it kind of doesn't matter whether technically what diagnosis you have, you, you want to help them. You know, on the other side, there's people who are like maybe hungering for, they're feeling a lot of legitimate stress for work or geopolitical or, you know, family stress reasons. And then, you know, it's a big question, I assume for you, you know, when do you medicate what is in fact a life problem? um, And and in fact, medicating can make managing that life problem easier. But there are, you know, the critics of, you know, big pharma and psychiatry, and I have lots of thoughts about that, but, you know, who say, oh, well, any any kind of treatment along those lines that is just kind of palliating the suffering of anxiety is actually masking it and not allowing you to deal with the, with the, with the deeper issues. I think there is a grain of, of, of truth to that, but I also, again, this is my personal view and I am not a psychiatrist, you know, that, that, that critique is, is sort of based in sort of ideological extremism. And, you know, there are lots of people who genuinely benefit uh, either in the short term or the long term from various kinds of psychotherapy or treatment, uh, you know, uh, psychopharmacological treatment that can help them feel better and get back on track and hopefully then get past the need for that. Yeah, you said it perfectly. There's no line in the sand between normal, quote unquote, anxiety and pathologic anxiety. There's no blood test for it. In the same way, there's no line in the sand between mental and physical health, right? There's no partition at our neck. We're like the neck up is one organ and the rest of it is another. Like it's all inseparable. And one of the reasons I think we have so much stigma within ourselves and within society around mental health is because there is no blood test. So it's like, it's hard to wrap your head around it. It's hard to wrap your arms around it. And even for physicians, people don't understand it. 
I mean, I will, I will talk to colleagues of mine who have seen someone, they have heart palpitations, migraine headaches, back pain, stomach aches, you know, they can't get out of bed in the morning. They've seen 15 different specialists. And at some point you just have to say, and this is what I try to do with my patients, like, this is not to dismiss your symptoms as, oh, it's just anxiety. This is to respect the fact that this is anxiety. Let's yeah. call it what it is yeah. and then address it. And as you said, there's a role for medication and there's a role for therapy. There's a role for introspection. There's a role for insight in oneself. Sometimes just naming it for people is I all they need. I was just going to say that na- the power tell- of naming it naming and then it. allowing them to find other people. Like, oh, that's what that oh. is. And oh, there are these other people who have this. And oh, there is a set of tools for w- with which I can deal with it. Now, there's the stigma that has historically attached to that too that some people resist. But I agree with you. Just naming it. Just naming it and empathizing. I mean, that's not enough for a lot of people, but, but saying like, Hey, this is, you're in the right place. You're in the doctor's office. You have a healthy heart. You have a healthy gut. Your head is perfect in terms of the anatomy. We've done an MRI to rule out a brain tumor for the, for that reason for your headaches. This is anxiety. Guess what? You're part of the human condition. You're part of the human species. Anxiety is a disorder just like diabetes is. It's harder to measure and quantify, but it's no less important. And that's actually why I've been interested in the childhood stuff in COVID is how we are kind of traumatizing children. Not all of them, of course, but with all this uncertainty and hyper caution and fear and that marinating in that narrative and what are we doing to these kids but separately the medication question is such a good one and I'm interested in your thoughts about that further because when I talk to my patients who I think should be on medication in conjunction with psychotherapy or leaving the abusive husband or or wife um, or in addition to working on their alcohol addiction I talk about medicine like like this it's a tool in the toolbox yeah just like self-awareness is just like mindfulness is, just like therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, if that's what you need. It's not a fix. It's not a cure. I don't put everybody with high cholesterol on Lipitor. In addition to Lipitor, which may or may not be appropriate, we talk about managing diet and exercise, but to the extent that cholesterol is informed by genetics that are fixed, and to the extent that you had a heart attack when you were 50 and you can't reverse that, Lipitor plus lifestyle modification is appropriate. It's the same thing with anxiety medicine or medicines for depression. It's a tool, it's not a cure. It's like it's a holistic approach that you take. No, actually, you, you, I mean, I have actually a whole bunch of Please, responses go for to it. things that you, you said, which is, I mean, first of all, it sounds like you are able to do what so many internists these days do not and psychopharmacologists, which is actually try to know the patient and take in the whole patient and not, because I, you know, and partly I know this is driven by like insurance, uh, but it's like, you know, you have a 15 minute psychopharm consult and you know, they're going down a list and it's like, okay, here I'm refilling your Lexapro or I'm switching you to Zoloft or I'm taking you off it. And then an internist, you know, sort of doing somewhat of the same thing, but they're not able to weigh all those factors. And I'm just, you know, it's, it's, I, I admire and, and, and think that you're taking the right uh, approach. Well, let me interrupt you just quickly to say that like listening is underrated in this world. And in medicine, if we don't listen to the patient and connect, and that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's why I'm trying to help people. Cause I want to hear your story, even though I'm interrupting you and talking a lot because I, I, I like the conversation, but listening to patients and hearing their stories is ultimately the birthplace of health. If you can then look back at yourself and then understand the tools that you need, whether it's medication, you know, which medication, which dose, and then connect it with your everyday lived experience and your behaviors, that is health. It's not about sorting and telling people you have depression, which the code for which is F32.9. You have F32.9. Right. Good luck to you. Right. 
That's not medicine. And that, and that, and that F2 for 3.9 is designed by like a combination of, you know, sort of people in a, in a, in a, you know, psychiatrist sitting in a room dealing with like insurance, you know, and then you test against that and you end up like reifying this thing as depression with, you know, whatever characteristics. And, you know, then you measure for that and it becomes a real thing. And again, the symptoms are real, but the way we've defined it is sort of arbitrary. And I've been fascinated by, you know, the line between depression, you know, what we call officially in the DSM, you know, clinical depression versus bipolar versus generalized anxiety disorder. There's so many, you know, what they call, uh, you know, as you, obviously, as you know, comorbidities, and it's unclear where one begins and one ends. The, the two other thoughts I had or a question I had for you, which is like, you know, I just because of my cast of mind, and I guess my dad was a doctor, like, you know, I, my, my view has always been like when people are offering treatments to me, I'm like, okay, what's the evidence for it? I want to know the scientific explanation mm -hmm. for why this works. And, you know, a lot of times it's not clear and I don't want like new age mumbo jumbo. But as I've gotten older and done things like mindfulness and acupuncture and things like that, like that the, there is a lot of wisdom in like the Eastern approach. And you were saying that like, you know, well, there's, you know, it's, it's, there's the brain and, and there's a the stuff in your head and then there's the rest. And we tend to think of it as like completely different, both for like insurance purposes, but also in terms of thinking of the human. It is more and more clear to me that, I mean, obviously, yes, the seat of emotion and cognition is in the brain. And yet we know so much from trauma research and from research on all kinds of other things that the brain and the body, and that is to say the mind and the brain, but not just the mind and the brain, but like mind, brain, and like all of the rest of you is all sort of, of in, in inseparable. And to give a, you know, sort of fine point and maybe a kind of a um, too vivid and gross one, you know, like, oh, I love gross. Um, um, well, no, and I, and I won't make it too vivid, but, but like, you know, one of my constant frustrations with my anxiety is that, you know, for me, when my anxiety is acute, there is a, you know, direct line between my, whatever's happening in my brain or my experience of anxiety and my GI tract. Yep. And, you know, it's extreme enough that I feel like it's as no less potent and, you know, sometimes violent as someone suffering from, say, Crohn's disease, oh, sure. which I don't, as far as I know, I have. Believe I believe it. And yet, you know, it's a brain thing. So, so, so it's like, you and know, if, that, if that's not real, then what is like, we all have had that experience where you walk off uh, the curb and there's a bus coming and you jump, you know, to, to avoid being hit by a bus and being pancaked. Like those are real chemicals. That is real. So your GI distress, that's not quote, in your head made up, it, but it is in your head. Right. Like, where else would it be? In your finger? Right. Like, it's in your head. It's in your brain. Right. And it generates that physiological response. Tell me a little, I mean, if you're willing to, like, w like what happens to you when you get anxious? I mean, it depends on, this, on the situation. And there's kind of, you know, in my, my, you know, I have over the years been diagnosed with, like, and again, we've stipulated that these are sort of arbitrary diagnoses, but, you know, generalized anxiety disorder with maybe OCD and then specific phobias and social anxiety. And so, you know, it depends on which one of those is predominant. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, the, the, the generalized anxiety is the sort of, you know, constant rumination and that um, you know, inability to make decisions and that, you know, clicks in with the OCD and just sort of, you know, going around and around and being able to get out, out of that loop. That's all for me, cognitive, the stuff that's most challenging for me is, you know, whether the trigger is just um, a bad anxious situation, like at work where I'm having to deal with like a whole bunch of incoming at once and there's deadlines and all that, or I'm about to go on, you know, uh, a live TV show and, um, you know, I'm having like physiological uh, experiences or travel is very, um, you know, sort of 
exacerbates my agoraphobia. So getting on a train or getting on a plane, that moment, you know, is often the moment when, you know, I feel like, uh oh, my lower, you know, my GI tract is losing. Yeah, bottom. exactly. Yeah. And, and 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 I hate it because I have no control over it. And I'm right. telling myself like I know, you know, I've studied this enough. I know exactly what is happening. I am, you know, an adult human with, you know, some reasonable degree of intelligence and understanding of what is going on. And I cannot control my own goddamn, you know, GI tract. And that is incredibly, it feels infantilizing yep. and, and, and frustrating. And, and, and if I can interrupt you, cause I'm a, fa- a famous interrupter, it's the birthplace of shame. Yeah. It's where shame lives. It's like, I am an intelligent person. I mean, your career is like nothing short of incredible. You're incredibly accomplished. You're incredibly smart. There's no, there's no lack of ability for you to intellectualize that getting on the train or the plane is going to be okay. Yeah. And And it does me no good. And it does you no good. And that is the very definition of anxiety, OCD, whatever you want to call it, whatever code we need to do to have the insurance pay for your visit with the doctor or the psychiatrist. It doesn't matter. What matters is giving you the tools to manage it. And so what do you do to manage that anxiety when you're about to get on a train or a plane or podcast or TV show? It varies a lot. And it's funny. And that's one of the frustrating things, too, is that it's somewhat unpredictable I remember reading when I was researching my book that like for like public speaking anxiety, there was a French therapist in the 19th century who was talking about it's like seasickness where, you know, you can be completely fine and then suddenly yep. you're, 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 you're hit by it, you know, and it's again, hard to diagnose. And I wish I could bottle the like kind of concatenation of factors that like array to make it perfect. You know, I mean, and it's all the things that your grandmother told you, and I'm sure you tell your patients, like, make sure you've got enough sleep, that you're eating well, that you, you know, I try to be mindful, try to keep things in perspective. And sometimes that works great. And my state of mind is, is terrific. Other times, you know, whether it's the combination of lack of sleep or some passing thought that I have or some, you know, I think my set of anxieties, like I tend to be very attuned to what is going on in my body. Like I will pick up some yes, subtle some thing signal. that sets off panic. Maybe it's because I had too much caffeine and I'm just off to the races. So in those cases, you know, I try, you know, I, in recent years I have become much more, I still suck at it, but I, I'm trying really hard to develop a mindfulness practice. Um, and, you know, sometimes I feel like it's working. And then every time after I've, I, I when I have a panic attack or something goes poorly, I'm like, oh my God, like, it's I'm not doing failure. anything at all. And then I told my therapist that he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Scott. You know, in three months, you didn't achieve complete enlightenment. Like, um, <laughs> I love your therapist already. Yeah, it's like, and then there's the anxiety that you're going to be anxious. Like, people who have OCD or anxiety who have, have a specific phobia about it that's in public, there's, like, the anticipatory anxiety of, like, because I don't have control over this phenomenon, like, what if? Right. I mean, anxiety loves to live in the what ifs, the oh, my gods, and then that itself pre- perpetuates the anxiety and so it's the fear of fear it's the fear of fear and then people my patients who are depressed it's it's depressing to be depressed yeah and then people are ashamed about having physical and emotional symptoms that aren't in their control and 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 again as we talked about earlier that is where i think we are failing patients we are not allowing them to be vulnerable and talk about these things in the doctor's offices doctors don't always have the time they don't always have the expertise or interest to kind of unpack what's, quote, beyond the prescription, if you will. Yep. Um, but that is ultimately what we need to do to help people get what they need to be healthy. Let me I'll answer further the question yeah. about, like, when I'm getting on a train or a plane, which I've you know done a couple times in the last few weeks, which I hadn't done for a while. So, again, it's like that machinery is rusted out. And, I you know, there are plenty of times when I can fly – 
without medication and it's fine. There are other times when it's just, you know, the, 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 the level of panic just goes off the charts. And, you know, I have been, there was one time in particular where I was like, not that far from basically like opening the, <laughs> you know, the door, the plane, the, door. The, the plane door and just jumping out, just being like, you know, I, I cannot, I cannot handle this. This was 20 years ago. But, this sounds like the opening of a great article that you have actually written. So. Um, but you, you know, so, so, so I, you know, I take, um, antidepressants, SSRI antidepressants, um, which, you know, I can't always tell if they, well, I often can't tell if they're doing anything, but you know the the theory is that at a certain dosage it reduces the propensity to panic. Um, that might work, but there are times when whatever dose I'm on is clearly not sufficient because I'm still getting that. Then you know benzodiazepines can be for me um, extremely effective at lowering um, the level, and so you know I will I will I will use those. Those are incredibly dangerous because they are dependency inducing and can have withdrawal effects and can and and I have had those issues where I've become too heavily um, dependent on those, particularly when and I don't do this anymore, but where I used to mix it with alcohol, right? That was again highly highly effective. Um, for a number of years, but what happened is you develop dose you develop tolerance, tolerance and you need more and more and more. And suddenly it's like, you know, here I am a nice, you know, I don't think of myself as like a binge drinker. I was not in a fraternity. And suddenly I was having trouble, you know, managing well, my right. alcohol consumption. I mean, not surprisingly, so many of my patients who struggle with the relationship with alcohol, whether they're quote unquote alcoholic, which again, it's a continuum, or whether they use it to medicate social anxiety or, or some sort of anxiety. I mean, Alcoholism is such a fascinating phenomenon. Addiction is such a fascinating phenomenon. And so much of that is the unmet needs, psychosocial, emotional needs that people aren't totally getting that aren't being met. I think it was in the Atlantic article that I was reading the excerpt from your book or mm -hmm. just about how you would mix like Xanax with alcohol to show up, but then you also needed some stimulant to be able to perform and it's finding that titration, which yeah. that alone is exhausting. No, having to, I mean, I felt like, you know, Elvis, like, you know, having to, I right. mean, having to take like a certain amount to get up and then, or, in the, or a certain amount to tamp it down. Um, and, and that's where, again, my, you know, I feel like, and I know that there are others in this situation and everyone's anxiety is different. And people are often surprised that like they, you know, people who know me or work with me say that I suffer from anxiety because like, I can what? often present. You right. look like a normal person, but right. that's guess what? But, Surprise. But, but, but they're not seeing me in the moments when, you know, it becomes absolutely physically overwhelming. And those are the moments when it's like the, you know, my impulse and not just the impulse, but kind of the need if I'm going to function to, to, it's like, I need to nuke, you know, the amygdala is sort of the seat of a lot of this stuff and the way, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I would take so much alcohol and benzos and other stuff to just get to where I was not, you know, where I was not doing the, the was it Cindy Brady, you know, on the, uh, you know, just sitting there like frozen. Eye. I mean, frozen. I've, I've had that. Wait, Cindy she was, it was, she there, there was an episode where she was like on some game show and, the, and she's super excited and she's been quit. And then like the, the, the whole, the like denouement of the show is they, uh, they, they show the um, episode and the red light goes on and she just, frozen with no, like she can't speak. And I love that you bring up the Brady Bunch because it makes me feel at home because we're the same vintage. I'm sure there, hopefully there are people listening to this who are like, who the hell is Cindy Brady? <laughs> anyway, anyway, but, but yeah, I remember, um, it was Marsha Brady who had to give a talk in front of her school and her dad's advice was to picture the audience in, in their, their underwear. underwear. <laughs> oh my God, I love that you remember that. And it's so funny. It's like, I hope we've evolved a little bit further beyond that as the treatment for anxiety. I mean, he, you know, Mr. Brady wasn't wrong that, no. that, that sort of disarming the audience yeah. and remembering that people are just people. And like, that's the intellectual exercise you have to go through when, when you're anxious is, is again, like, what is the big deal? 
these people are just people. They all wear underwear. Um, Brene Brown talks about a similar situation. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love Brene Brown. She's great. She's like the shame whisperer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, you just having talked to patients for 20 years and having, you know, having had anxiety myself and I've done a lot of therapy myself, um, you know, shame is a universal feeling. And the difference, as she well describes, between shame and guilt is that guilt is I've done something bad. Shame is I am bad. Yep. And shame is also where people don't end up getting help for whether it's addiction or anxiety or addiction and anxiety or PTSD or depression because it isn't, unfortunately, even in 2022, discussed as something that is relevant or important to your health or that is worthy of bringing up in the doctor's office. But people have come to me as their primary care doctor more than the, people are more likely to come to me as their primary care doctor when I have a rapport with them and tell me about their gender dysphoria or their alcohol abuse or their challenging relationships than to just look in the yellow pages if that exists anywhere for a psychiatrist because of the stigma also because it's not always covered by insurance yeah and so you know my hope is that my kids live in a world maybe that your kids live in a world where like all this is just more normalized and more discussed. And I think that's happening. I think so too. I mean, I, and if, you know, my kids, when I bequeath them each in different ways with, um, you know, versions of my own anxiety, they're both better at managing that I, I am and have it less acutely, but they're also much, I mean, compared to where I was at their age, where I would like sneak out for psychiatrists, uh, you know, uh, appointments and never tell anyone they're actually quite open about talking about yeah, it. Good. And I don't think that's super unique among their friends. Now that may be a separate issue that there's so much more prevalence of, you know, these disorders that they kind of have to talk about it. And yeah, the sort of shame, self-esteem nexus is one that I'm, you know, unfortunately deeply familiar with. Um, and, you know, again, it, in, in my own case, it emanates probably from lots of things, but, you know, fundamentally from what we were talking about earlier is that like my physical debility produced by my anxiety, you know, constrains my life. And I'm in a profession with like a ton of impressive people. I work with a lot of, of, you know, super impressive people. And, you know, I'll be working with people reporting, you know, say on the ground in war zones in Ukraine or Syria or where have you. And, you know, I'm doing what I think is a good job helping them to do stuff. And at the same time, I'm feeling the shame. Like I can't believe they are so brave and confident that they are able to, you know, fly to this foreign country where they could get shot at and die and are risking their lives. And I'm afraid, you know, for me, like getting on a train to go from DC to Manhattan is an enormous strain. And I honestly think that like, if I were to go to Kiev, you know, the bigger, I wouldn't be afraid of being, I mean, I would be normally afraid of being shot at, but it's like, I don't like being on a train and I don't like eating foreign food and I'm afraid of contamination and it's not irrational. Let me play your therapist for a second who would say, I'm guessing that, and this, I'll be your mother too for a second as well, to say that the person who's in Kiev, who's, who's brave enough to be out there in a war zone and you're meanwhile worried about, you know, having diarrhea on a train, like that person has an emotional life and struggles and challenges just like everybody else. It may not be about living in a war zone it may be about something else. They may be experiencing childhood trauma. Yeah. They may be having. They may be reckoning with some other addiction. Not to say that we're all mentally ill. Let's be clear. Like, you know, we don't need to medicalize everybody's mental health, right? Like, we all have mental health. It's not a question of you have, if you have it or not. It's whether you've if you've had struggles with it, and do you connect that to your to your physical health and your 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 life? But I'm just saying that, you know, struggle is universal. And whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, whether it's relationship-wise, whether it's medical, whether it's genetic, like, we're all sort of, I mean, that's what's so cool for me about my job is, like, 
we're all just trying to get through the day. We're all like, no one really knows anything. We're just kind of like doing the best we can. And because I see in my patient population, I see a lot of like, quote, VIPs and Mm -hmm. a lot of like, you know, Washington muckety mucks. And what's so great about that in a way is that like, you know, they need a rectal exam and a, you know, they get diarrhea too. Like we're all the same. We're all just kind of imperfect, messy, hot messes under the surface of what looks like success. Yeah. Do you know and, what I mean? Like, and, and, well, and so much of life is geared toward, of society is sort of geared towards hiding that and you oh, know, yeah. demanding us to hiding that. No, but it's, it's to put a, f- a fine point on something you were just saying. I, I won't name the person, but I, I was really struck. Like when I was working on the anxiety book, uh, you know, this was a decade ago. Um, she knew I was working on it. And this was a, 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 a war correspondent who had reported from Bosnia, I think Bosnia, but, 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 you know, African war ter- you know, zones, and then later would report from Afghanistan and, you know, Anyone looking at it from the outside would say, oh, my God, like what an incredibly like brave, almost like kamikaze like brave. And she had said, you know, would you mind getting together for a drink? And I was like, "Okay, what are we going to talk about? And then she confessed like her acute anxiety. But for her, the only place she felt safe was in these war zones when there was stuff going on outside. When she would come home, she had trichotillomania, which is where she's pulling pulling her hair. She was taking heavy antidepressants. And, you know, the stress of waiting for an editor to get back to her to say, like, yes or no, was, like, what for a normal person would be, like, am I going to get shot in this war zone? In the war zone, she's like, I'm fine. Um, Maybe it's so fascinating. I'd love to talk to her sometime, but maybe like some people, it's like the adrenaline that is required to live in that war zone kind of can drown out some of the other stuff. Like our brains have to triage at some point. So maybe that's how she sort of quote medicates and like masks other anxiety, or maybe that's just her particular phobia that is not activated when she's in a war zone. It's so, I mean, this is why people are endlessly fascinating. Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. And welcome back to Beyond the Prescription. If I can ask you this, and you don't have to answer this question, Scott, but so much of what you're describing is what I would call hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. Hypervigilance being the term for emotional, uh, physical, like agitation and activation that you know isn't required necessarily for the thing you're dealing with. Like you don't, yeah. your body doesn't need to be in that state of acute stress when you're getting on a on a plane, and you know that but it still happens. It feels awfully like like trauma, like post-traumatic anxiety, post-traumatic stress. When yeah. someone is having in, in a trauma, whether it's you know being isolated from friends for two years in a pandemic and you live in a multi-generational house where there's no internet and you're not able to communicate with your peers for two years, whether you're in Ukraine in the war theater, whether you are someone who's in a challenging relationship, that trauma as as... Gabor Mate, I don't know if you know him, mm-hmm. trauma specialist says mm-hmm. trauma isn't what happens to you, it's what lives inside you. Yep. And it and those traumas manifest themselves physically in the moment, but it certainly plays out later in life. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in childhood trauma is because my patients who are teens and adults, 
who have problems with their eating, their relationship with food, their relationship with alcohol, their anxiety, their bodies, who struggle with anxiety, depression, OCD, often the roots of those problems are from childhood. So my long way of, of asking you, uh, like, does this feel like trauma to you? Was there childhood trauma? Not that there's any one event necessarily, but it feels a lot like PTSD. The, no, it's a really interesting question. And, and, the, and the short answer is, I don't know. Yeah. The longer answer is, um, you know, I, I mean, obviously trauma has become much more discussed in recent years and much more, you know, there's the literature on that is building. And, you know, I, I was, I, I read in the last year, you know, the body keeps the score great um, book. By, by a great researcher at, at uh, up in Boston. And, and yes, I mean, I find when I read those, it's like, wow, you know, just sort of the like symptomatic manifestations of my anxiety, um, have that kind of deep trauma level, PTSD level, um, quality to them. You know, like I say, the, the, the shaking, the loss of, you know, GI control, just like the, the complete prostration at, at, at times. That said, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, in the scheme of the world, I grew up in a comfortable middle class environment, but, um, you know, I had plenty of, uh, you know, a, a sort of family tree stippled with all kinds of mental illness and genetic stuff. Uh, you know, my parents had a tumultuous relationship. My mom was super anxious. And there are moments, you know, I have wondered, I had surgery when I was two years old, um, mm. which is one of my first memories on a, on a mole on my neck. And I remember, you know, getting sort of wheeled down the hall and the ether getting put on my, on my, on my face and just screaming. And for years I thought it was a dream, you know, like not knowing what it, did that, you know, yeah. do that. I, I, so I can't point to a single traumatic experience. Um, and I don't know, you know, and obviously I've got a ample genetic component of sort of temperamental, uh, high reactivity and sort of hyper responsiveness. So I don't know, but, but yeah. you're, you're absolutely right that there is a, there, there, there is just in my own reading, a kind of, um, trauma level. Yeah. Quality and, to and, and some of my patients will, will, will describe a discrete moment. Like I was sexually assaulted in college. And then there are other people who, whose trauma, if we want to call it, that was being raised in a very, very anxious family that wasn't emotionally attached, um, and didn't talk about their anxiety or they were raised in a family with a lot of addiction and dysfunction. Yep. And it was just traumatizing because you're a sensitive person and your response to being in that milieu as a child was, was traumatizing. Again, not to say that we all have been traumatized, not to say that, you know, we're all mentally ill. I'm just saying that those childhood experiences, um, whether it's a discrete moment or it's just a, a, a marriage of your, sort of temperament with your environment certainly do play out later in life, which is why I think it's so important we're talking to children these days about mental health without, you know, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's self-awareness and there's self-indulgence, right? Like we could talk about our own minds and our own brains and our, our mental health, like ad nauseum. There's a mental health is having a moment, yeah. but what we don't want to do is say that everyone is mentally ill pathologize everyone and pathologize and like, you know, and medicalize all of it. Like yeah. if you are a jerk to your friend, you're just a jerk to your friend. It's not because you're like, right. you, your anxiety was flaring. Although maybe it was, but like, let's, we also have to own our behaviors and like own that we do stuff that is maybe not healthy for us, that is not healthy for other people. And like, we have to own it. Yeah. No. And then, there, and then there are, I mean, to the question of like, are we pathologizing or over medicalizing everything? You know, there are, again, I, I don't fully subscribe to this, but there is a grain of truth to critiques of just the structure of, you know, whether from a Marxist perspective or just a left-wing anti-capitalist, you know, socialist perspective that like the way society is arranged mm -hmm. now is 
anxiogenic and yes. and and just d- bad for us. And and you know what you were saying. You know we want we need connection and community and support and like the way life is arranged now because of late stage capitalism or whatever is bad for that. And that does not mean you know, we are born with mental illness. It means that the society is mentally ill. Um, That's it. And actually there's a great article in the Atlantic this week um, about why kids are so depressed. And and I was really skeptical when I saw the headline Mm because I'm like, oh dear, here we go again. Some cute sort of thousand word piece about why everyone's so depressed. And it actually was good. And it talks about why teens are so depressed. And of course it's multifactorial and it's societal and it's genetic and it's behavioral, all of it pandemic. But one of the things he talks about is the world we live in. Like yeah. it's, it's made to make people anxious, depressed and have low yeah. self-esteem. I mean, look at, look at Instagram. Like yeah. it's not good for teenage no, it's girls. All, it's all it's about self-esteem. presenting outward. Look at Twitter. Twitter's not good for my mental health. It's not good. I mean, to think that you can put a complex subject in 280 characters is ridiculous. It's, it's reductionism. It pits us against each other. It, and then it makes people anxious and depressed. And- no, I mean, even the, even the, you know, when you make reasonable arguments about like COVID, mitigation or like it, it just gets watered down to where you just get all these people piling on and, and then it gets more and more ridiculous. And thank and, God I've and done enough therapy because I'm, I can see what's happening from a distance. And now I can see the mechanics of the algorithms trying to make me angry yeah. and it's pretty effective sometimes, but I'm also like, Oh, I'm going to step away from my instinct to like tweet the hell back at that person. And Realize keep, that this is a construct. Keep the high road, which isn't always good. Ask my husband. I don't always keep the high road. But the point is that yes, society now is like anxiogenic, as you said. It's depressing, and so you know we could blanket the world with Prozac. We could give everybody access, unfettered access to a therapist. Or in the meantime, can we just name the fact that mental health is relevant? That mental yep. health informs our everyday feelings, behaviors, relationships. Let me ask you one final question. What is your definition of success? Because success in the world we live in is, you know, having a top job, living in a nice house, being on TV, whatever, you know, success, even in 2022, still has these sort of trappings to it. To me, it's a lot more broad and wide, and I'd be interested in your definition. Um, Good, hard question. But before I answer, I want to come back to two other things just very quickly. Please, it doesn't have Um, to be quick. One is just to, we were talking about, you know, trauma and does it have to be a single entity? And, and, and I, you know, it's funny in my own experience, like I talk in the book about, um, you know, I, I grew up in this household where again, it was a bit tumultuous, you know, there was some physical mild, I would characterize it as physical abuse. You know, I, I'm Jewish on one side and wasp on the other side. And as I say in the, in the, in the book, I was sort of like, you know, a, a histrionic neurotic Jew trapped inside like a repressed neurotic wasp oh God, because, because, you know, my, my, and actually my, my dad wasn't that anxious and he was on the Jewish side, but like that, I clearly have those elements and that is a toxic combination because it was like, I was horribly anxious and, you know, miserable about all kinds of things. But my mom's approach to everything was like, you know, the stiff upper lip wasp thing, which is like, never let anyone see any of your dirty laundry. You know, I'd be screaming with anxiety when I was seven or 12 and she'd be running around literally shutting all the windows like nobody can hear this oh my god um i mean l- l- can we just say for a second that that's that's traumatic to a sensitive anxious kid yeah not trying to blame her not trying to demonize her she was probably doing what she thought was the best thing she could yeah. do for you like she loved you yeah but well and she didn't want to embarrass be embarrassed in front of the neighbors as i can relate to too you know of course <laughs> so the other the other thing and this is tangential but you were talking about um this is one thing that i've i've, I've thought about in, in in recent years related to the way that people use alcohol to 
medicate, you know, anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And one of the big challenges, I think, and it's something that that I I have now in recent years struggled after having, you know, been able to make effective use of benzos and alcohol for a very long time to manage it. And then suddenly it was less effective and then problematic is that, you know, I think a lot of the, and I've seen the research on this is starting to move in this direction um, among the the kind of cutting edge addiction researchers. But, you know, a lot of the research on addiction used to be about like, what is it, um, you know, how do you stop the compulsion to want to feel good um, that um, these, whether it's alcohol or meth or heroin or whatever, you know, creates. And there's a legitimate, you know, basis for that. And there's all kinds of neuroscience, like about what it does to your dopamine centers and all that. My own experience and what I think is, is, is emerging and why, um, you know, the sort of prescriptions for like abstinence are so important is that what really what and again, in my own case, you know, the, the, the introduction of like alcohol into an anxious situation, it's not, I mean, you know, having a glass of wine at the end of the day can be pleasurable. It, it is adding pleasurable, but really it is removing pain. Um, you said and, that, it. and that, and that various ways, you know, and, and particularly in, you know, in, in communities all over where they're suffering from opioid addiction. I mean, obviously there are, you know, there's supply problems and there's legitimate pain problems caused by jobs. But, you know, it's all the things you were saying about, you know, there's lack of social structure, there's anomie, there's depression, and there's anxiety. And then suddenly you take this thing that produces the absence of, of pain. That, 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 that pain. And then if you're able to get weaned off it, the reason why abstinence works, again, in my emerging theory, is that, like, what happens is you can then go along for a while without taking anything. And then the moment it gets in your system again, in some ways the point of sustained abstinence from whatever your drug of choice is, is to, you know, obviously get over the physical withdrawal and the physical dependency and then develop new habits and learn to tolerate kind of life as it is, or as they say in the 12-step programs, life on life's terms. The problem is as soon as you get some more of that, whatever it is on board, you're like, oh my God, I remember this and I don't have to feel this way anymore. And all this stuff that I've been like building up and you're off to the races again. That's it. And Um, that's self-medication right there. And it makes absolute sense. I think you're, you're so right, Scott. It's obviously a legitimate question. What is driving the urge to drink? You know, let's 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 ramp up in this country access to rehabilitation centers. Let's 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 like destigmatize addiction. But the root cause is what is the pain? What is the suffering? Yeah. Where does it come from? Is it in your is it in your childhood? Is it genetic? Is it behavioral? Is it all of it? Because substances, whether it's heroin, meth, alcohol, it, it's it's it numbs pain, but it can't it can't it can't select for the exact pain you want it to numb. It numbs exactly. everything. Exactly. And then it numbs relationships. And then, and then you get physically dependent and then, exactly. all your, and then all kinds of bad things happen. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www kglobal.com slash podcast. Welcome back. Let's get on with our conversation. And again, like human beings are endlessly fascinating to me and particularly in how we, we try to solve for the unsolvable sometimes and we try to fix the unfixable. To me, everything boils down to the serenity prayer. Yeah. Which it's like I carry it in my backpack all the time, not literally. And I'm not religious. It's not even a religious prayer really. But accepting the things that cause you pain or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, if we can, could, can't change. If we could do better at this in this world, we'd be a lot better off. Except the things that we cannot change. Yeah. Because there are a lot of fixed, awful realities in the world we live in, right? Work on the things 
that you can change. And by the way, if you need help accepting things that are hard to accept, let's try to help you with that. Yep. And if you need help working on the things you can change, whether it's losing weight, quitting alcohol, managing your anxiety, let's give you the tools you need. And then it's knowing the difference. Because so much of what anxiety does is it spends a lot of time trying to control the uncontrollable yeah. and not enough time working on the things you can control. Yep. And then not knowing the difference because our world and culture and in the United States of America, we don't help people navigate that. We don't say, hey, your diarrhea and GI distress is not Crohn's disease. It's actually anxiety. And so instead of trying to see every gastroenterologist in the city, let's call it what it is and then give you the tools to manage the anxiety. So serenity prayer, let's just blanket the world with that and explain it. And then not just explain it, but give people the tools they need. Arm them with the tools they need to manage everyday life, which is intensely anxiety producing, intensely depressing. But there's also something called post-traumatic growth, mm -hmm. which is a kind of a cute word, but it's where you take, as you have done, and here you are, you take the challenges you faced, you've taken the trauma of just having an anxiety disorder or having the experiences you had as a child, and you make meaning out of it. Not everyone has the luxury to do that, but if you have the luxury of having had a good therapist, having been given some some tools and, and had your own insight, and then you can take that and apply it and then write a book about your age of anxiety and then help people around the country and around the world understand that they're not crazy, they're just human, then that, to me, is success. Well, and I, so that was a good segue to the last, um, to, to your success question, because yes, it's exactly as you say. I mean, you know, for me, I felt thrilled too that the, the book, you know, made the New York Times bestseller list and it got good reviews. Um, and I'm not going to lie that that was not like enormously gratifying of to my course. ego. But, you know, I was not expecting to also be getting sort of a deeper or a different and, and in some ways deeper kind of pleasure from people writing in and saying, you know, thank you, you helped me. And it, it's always funny when I hear those because I'm like, I'm still pretty goddamn anxious. And, and I don't know <laughs> yeah, what the it- the book wasn't the, a cure well, for well, your no, anxiety. And they're, they're like, oh, you made me feel so much better. I'm like, what page was that on? Like, I want to go back in it and, 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 and figure it out. And, you know, more directly, you know, like what is success? I mean, you know, to some degree, inescapably, I think I subscribe to um, or unavoidably, you know, um, the society's definitions of success, you know, having a nice house and having a good income and having, I'd love to have a vacation house and having professional esteem and getting recognized in my career and winning, you know, sure. accolades. all that stuff is great. As I get older, and I don't know how much of this is wisdom born from my anxiety or just being 50 years old, older than 50 years old, but that like really it is, you know, those things are always going to have their draw, but they're super, they're, they're ephemeral. They, that they don't last long. And that really it's kind of what, you, you know, the things that keep you healthy, which is social connection, being able to accept who you are, being more, you know, who's actually comfortable in their own skin, but like the more comfortable you can get in your own skin, um, and be kind of who you are and, you know, find your community in whom like you, you're finding the support you want. And, and, you know, again, this gets to the mindfulness stuff too. And again, I suck at it, but trying to, um, you know, particularly as our kids get older, you know, time is always passing and, you know, the anxious mind, my anxious mind is always looking ahead to worrying about the next thing or thinking back to regretting the thing that I think I screwed up, but I have so many blessings in my life and I am more recognizing of them as I get older and more appreciating of, of them. And the more that all of us, I mean, there are, you know, no matter how tough your life circumstances are, there are probably things you can be grateful for and, you know, leaning into those and, you know, figuring out that line between accepting the things that suck um, and accepting the things that and distinguishing those from the things that suck that can be changed from yes. your own agency. Um, you know, you don't want it to just be complete 
resignation, like, oh, everything sucks. I just need to be okay with that. It's, it's, it's finding that balance and it's, it's a constant struggle, but, but success is, um, you know, being with people that you care about taking, you know, taking care of them, feeling like you are living up to your own sense of values and integrity, whatever those are. And you may be, you know, struggling to find them out all the time. Um, and you know, just trying to, um, successfully get through life and connect with other people in ways that hopefully help them. And I'm constantly surprised, um, you know, as someone who's like, Oh, I don't want to go help that person. What a pain in the act. I don't want to volunteer. You always feel better after you do it. Um, and there's good reason for that. You may not realize how many people you have helped. Um, but I will tell you that it helped me reading your book. Um, it helped a lot of my patients because I told people about it. Um, people then came back to me saying, oh my gosh, I don't feel so crazy. Um, there's nothing like having someone who looks on the surface to have everything figured out as you do with your book, um, to, to validate someone else's anxiety. Um, I'll be honest. It's also nice. People are like, well, at least I don't, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I get a lot of that. <laughs> oh my God. They're like, wow, I'm not actually that anxious, but I see, I see the threads of it. Oh my God. That was such a gift, Scott. Um, and gift of being honest, like just being honest with ourselves and being honest with then other people, if you're willing to, um, because again, at the end of the day, we're all human. We're all vulnerable. We all have massive flaws. We're all like ducks sitting on the water that look like we're doing okay. Or maybe not everybody looks like they're doing okay. And then under the water, it's like pedal, 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 pedal. Yep. Um, and so I have one question to ask you at the end. I always wrap up with one question. Um, if you were to give one piece of mental health advice to somebody who's struggling right now, someone who, who hasn't necessarily reckoned with their mental health, mm-hmm. although who hasn't during the pandemic, maybe they just didn't realize they reckoned, reckoned with it. But what would you say to that person who's struggling with either anxiety or depression and who hasn't, who's sort of a mental health virgin, if you will? Yep. Well, I mean, first of all, and these, I guess, go together is to a recognize that what they are going through is not weird or unusual or, um, it's actually completely, especially in these circumstances, normal. Even in not in these circumstances, it's normal for many people. But that that like it, they are not, you know, crazy and you know out of bounds of society. And 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 related to that, that they should seek help. And that can be through someone like you, who's their primary care practitioner, or through you know even if they're you know I, I mean ideally they have a doctor or someone they know who can refer them to a mental health clinic. Right. I know that like demand for all that. Um, went through the roof during the pandemic, but there's, you know, like NAMI or the ADAA, which is the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. You can just go on their websites and they will help you find a therapist near you. But basically these conditions are normal within the scope of the human condition, you know, mm-hmm. treatable yep. um, in various ways. And there are lots of people who are in the same boat. And sometimes just that knowledge can make you feel better. And sometimes that knowledge plus being connected with those people, either through going into the mental health establishment or just peer communities can, can be really, really helpful. Um, yeah, and, I think and that's so helpful. Better. And, and there are lots of, you know, there's therapy, there's, you know, there's guided meditation. There's, you know, of course, exercise is a great way to discharge. Exercise is a great way to discharge adrenaline, but it's not like we would use exercise alone to manage someone's, you know, sort of unbridled anxiety. But I think that's great advice. And just you being here today is helpful, I think, for a lot of people, hopefully, who are listening. And I just can't thank you enough for sharing your story and for being so honest and hilarious and smart. And you're a work in progress, like we all are. And I just appreciate you coming along today and sharing your story. Um, Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast 
at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my multi-talented brother, Walter Martin. On our way out, please enjoy his song, Down by the Singing Sea. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well. Fish are jumping, guess they're hunting. Come on.